0: on the So, if anybody at Monticello invented mac and cheese, it was that guy.
1: Probably. Yeah. But I
0: don't think it was a thing anyway. Anyway, fuck Thomas Jefferson.
1: So historically, he's very interesting.
0: Thomas Jefferson is one of those guys that I like completely, like admired and quoted the shit out of when I was younger, all the way through my like libertarian phase, and now like the same time, like I learned more about him as like, oh yeah. Piece of shit, and certain certainly not as courageous or as cool as he liked to pretend he was.
1: No, he was real good at talking shit, though. Yeah,
0: big fucking mouth on him.
1: Alrighty, let's talk about other people who have big fucking mouths on them.
0: <laughs> so, speaking of people who didn't invent macaroni and cheese, <laughs> which could be anybody, but in this case, uh, I was you know, about
1: to say that's literally pretty much everyone, everyone except Thomas one. Jefferson.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in this case we're gonna be talking about Francis Perkins part two. but first let's introduce ourselves. This is Chainsaw History. We are the podcast where we take the important figures of history and give it the same respect a truck driver gives a gas station urinal.
1: But not today because Francis Perkins deserves our respect.
0: Yes, today we're gonna today we're lifting up instead of uh, smacking down like we usually do. Uh, I'm Jamie Chambers. This is my sister Bambi.
1: Hello.
0: And we are a comedy slash history slash whatever podcast. Um, I'm a guy who took some history classes in college, but I am not a historian. I just play one on pretend radio.
1: I'm just here for the ride.
0: We are back to continue the story of Frances Perkins, who is now the Secretary of Labor under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After working for the betterment of the poor and working class for decades of her life in Philadelphia, Chicago, and New York, before moving to Washington, D.C. at the insistence of the president-elect. But before we dive back in, I thought we'd start with a poem. Poem. A poem. So in 1932, Mount Holyoke College, the all-women alma mater of Frances Perkins and many other women, began a tradition of seniors singing bread and roses as part of their graduation ceremony. The song lyrics are taken from a poem written by James Oppenheim, first written in 1911 and later published in an anthology by Frances' own friend Upton Sinclair. So the poem takes its key phrase from an important speech in the movement for women's suffrage during an automobile campaign all over the state of Illinois. So these ladies organized cars full of women drove all around the state with signs and gave speeches on street corners and hosted special events um, all to promote the women's right to vote.
1: And isn't this also a song because I think I've heard it?
0: Yes. No, you you they absolutely put it have. Yeah, so this, it's, yeah. it started, so, so basically I'm kind of giving you the background of this for a reason. Um, so it started as a phrase that came out of the women's suffrage movement. So during this automobile campaign in Illinois, and this is to support the actual constitutional amendment to allow women to have the right to vote, Helen Todd was a state factory inspector, and uh, she gave this speech and later published it in an article. Quote, Not at once. But woman is the mothering element in the world, and her vote will go toward helping forward the time when life's bread, which is home, shelter, and security, and the roses of life, music, education, nature, and books, shall be the heritage of every child that is born in the country, and the government of which she has a voice." So it was a really good speech, got got a lot of traction, so Oppenheim really caught on to the whole bread and roses phrase and put it into verse. As we come marching, marching, in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses, for the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. As we come marching, marching, we battle too for men, for they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our days shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses." As we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead, go crying through our singing their ancient song of bread. Small art and love and beauty their trudging spirits knew. Yes, it is bread for which we fight, but we fight for roses too. As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days. Of rising of the women means rising of the race. No more drudge and idler, tend that toil where one reposes. But a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, Bread and Roses. So the pairing of bread and roses caught on with the working women first, as Helen Todd was the first to connect the right to vote for women with the unfair conditions and demands made upon them in the industrial world without allowing them a voice or a say in the government, which is supposedly, you know, by the people and for the people.
1: Yeah, just not all all the people.
0: All right. So instead of just talking about rights or making a legal argument, she's literally making a moral case that women deserve both bread, meaning like the essentials and roses, like the enrichments life has to offer to give it meaning and dignity. So that's really kind of where it it started. You know, that, that's a beautiful pairing. It's like it's not just about having just the bare scraps to survive, but you should have a life of dignity and have some some pleasures and enrichments as well. It's like it's a human right that everyone has women, men, everybody.
1: Yeah, you know, when you live in the richest country in the world. Radical,
0: radical idea, I know. You're not supposed to work 16-hour days, just collapse so you can do it again, and then go to church on Sunday.
1: Oh, while pregnant. Don't forget while pregnant, also having (laughs) small children.
0: For sure. So, one of our sources for this episode is the documentary, Summoned, Francis Perkins and the General Welfare. And it plays this song during its closing credits. It's been adopted by labor organizers and even abortion rights activists throughout the world over the years. It's also worth noting that Bread and Roses also inspired the logo for and is the name of a caucus within the Democratic Socialists of America. Current members of the DSA include House Representatives Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Bread and roses. So the year after her old college adopts that song for graduation, Frances Perkins prepared to move away from her institutionalized husband and her daughter who seems to have been severely bipolar or had some other kind of like mental health condition. I'm no lo- not at all qualified or informed enough to diagnose anyone, but it really seems like Susanna Perkins inherited her, her dad's issues. And, it, and even though she lived to be an old lady, she had problems. Like her mother had to support her until the day she died.
1: Yeah, that happens.
0: So Francis is is you know gonna leave both husband and daughter behind to move to D.C. But as we mentioned last time, she absolutely did not actually want this job at all. But instead, it you know, it was like when the president called on her, she felt like she had a duty. And know, she was gonna do this job. She was gonna do it right. So called to serve. This is what Francis Perkins had to say herself. Quote. I came to Washington to work for God, FDR, and the millions of forgotten, plain, common working men. And she was not about to make this incredible sacrifice to her family and her privacy to just be like a placeholder. Just be like, ooh, I'm the first woman cabinet member. Yeah. She knew from her time in New York that FDR could go either way when it came to labor. So if she was going to serve, she was going to get some shit done. She only accepted the position under her own terms, according to the Francis Perkins Center. Quote. She outlined for him a set of policy priorities that she would pursue. A 40-hour work week, a minimum wage, unemployment compensation, workers' compensation, abolition of child labor, direct federal aid to the states for unemployment relief, social security, a revitalized federal employment service, and universal health insurance. That was her checklist going in. And she's like... You you want me to do this job, you got to promise to back me on every single one of these things or I'm not doing it. Roosevelt is quoted as saying, I suppose you're going to nag me about this forever. Which she assured him that she would. And with that, he promised to back her on her wish list during her time in the cabinet. Only one of two people to stay with Roosevelt for his entire presidency. Which, as we both know, was really fucking long.
1: Yeah, he had a nice long run.
0: Yeah, longer than literally anybody else. Yeah, and it's likely... Um, and I
1: guess this is one of the reasons why he got a lot of shit done.
0: Yeah. A lot of the stuff he's most credited for, at least when it comes to, like, the New Deal, is all her. You know, World War II, you know, that's that's outside yeah. of her realm, but that's a whole other story. So, it's likely that their time together in New York is where Francis learned exactly how to deal with Franklin. In fact, she wrote the book on it. Literally. After the president's death, Francis wrote a biography titled The Roosevelt I Knew, which was a bestseller, like considered one of the definitive, like, Roosevelt biographies for a while. In it, she described a leader who was always most influenced by whichever advisor had his ear and often whoever was the last person he met. I have had a boss exactly like that. That's just like whoever the last person who made a good case was the person they would always listen to. So that's why she had a system for giving FDR no wiggle room when it came to their plans and agreements. As described by David Brooks, quote, Before her meeting with the president, she would prepare a one-page memo outlining the concrete options before him. They would go over her outline and Roosevelt would state his preference. Then Perkins would force him to repeat himself. Do you authorize me to go ahead with this? Are you sure? They would have a little more discussion, and then Perkins would underline his decision a second time. Are you sure you want item number one? Do you want items number two and three? You understand that this is what we do, and this is who is opposed? The purpose of this exercise was to sear a photograph of the decision into Roosevelt's memory. Then she would ask him a third time, asking him whether he explicitly remembered his decision and understood the opposition he would face. Is that all right? Is it still okay? Unquote. She said this technique also worked with 10-year-old boys. Yep. So she, like, got really good at managing FDR and making sure he had no room to say, you know, what are you talking about? I didn't agree to this. It's like, no, we went over this Mm -hmm. over and over again, and I made you write it down.
1: Yeah. Because also, at that point, if he's like, oh, I don't remember that, he also looks like a complete and total buffoon.
0: However, he would also warn her a lot. Like, he would send her on stuff, on missions, even letting her know going in, like, if you get away with it, I'll back you up. <laughs> but if you, but, uh, but if this turns goes bad, I've never heard of what you're talking about and I'll hang you out to dry. I mean, she, like, unlike her relationship with Al Smith, the, the former governor of New York, like, she didn't actually trust FDR, which is why she kind of had to manage him. But she also knew with him, she could get a lot of stuff done. So she had a lot of challenges in her new job, even without this ambitious wish list. For one thing, back then, the United States Border Patrol was under the umbrella of the Department of Labor. So, literally, the Border Patrol is, is suddenly her problem. Yeah. And it kind of made sense because right back then, for the immigrant and migra- migrant labor have always been a huge part of our country, and especially during this point of waves of migration and the Industrial Revolution, you know.
1: Yeah, and, you know, it's an important part of our industry now. And apparently we've forgotten yeah. that.
0: But, but at this point, like, it was explicitly, like, the Department of Labor was directly in charge of that. And, and, I mean, it's only, like, the idea of even having a closed border was only 10 years old. Border Patrol had only been established during the Immigration Act of 1924. And, like, racism and brutality against foreign-born workers were so common at this point that Frances had already been speaking out against Border Patrol years before she'd even, like, became their boss. So according to the documentary Summoned that I mentioned earlier, quote, Perkins inherited a corrupt labor department that had become a platform to shake down and harass foreign workers who were arrested, denied lawyers, and held without charges. After putting an end to the corruption, she issued a memo to employees to treat aliens in a manner worthy of the dignity and professed humanity of the United States, unquote. Sadly, these reforms didn't last very long. The White House eventually place border patrol under the authority of the department of justice and over the decades the laws and practices only made things worse over time to this day u.s border patrol remains arguably one of the most brutal branches of the federal law enforcement just a bunch of white supremacist thugs and ice is horrible and should be abolished but at least she tried to to make border patrol suck less while she was in charge of it so good for her
1: good for her she didn't succeed. This was one of those areas making border patrol not suck. But that's okay. She's one woman.
0: Yeah. Couldn't enact permanent change there, but she at least gave it a shot. Now, while the she press tried. would often call her Ma Perkins, in person Frances insisted on being called Madam Secretary, and with her fussy New England insistence that would require the respect her office and experience demanded. This is in the face of chauvinistic labor leaders who were angry they were passed by in favor of a woman. Because a lot of high-level labor organizers really thought they should have the job and not some chick. Oh,
1: I'm sure. Yeah, I'm fucking for sure sure about that.
0: Yeah, she had to deal with just stupid sexism the entire time she was in office. Or held her position. If
1: she were in office right now, she'd have to deal with stupid sexism. I can only imagine being the, being the very, first. very first one in office. That would just yeah. be fucking terrible. Ugh.
0: <laughs> so yeah, being taken seriously by men with their own ideas wasn't always easy. So as part of her very first cabinet meeting, Francis reports her number one priority. Quote, Every state practically has exhausted its reserves. The federal government must appropriate a very large sum of money to feed the hungry. Unquote but roosevelts are going to roosevelt and if there's one thing that a roosevelt loves it's trees during his time in
1: office loves
0: trees sure does all the roosevelts during his time in office theodore roosevelt had doubled the number of sites within the national park system now his fifth cousin franklin delano was inspired by the movie the plow that broke the plains and got it in his head that trees could be the solution just take all the unemployed men and send them out into the wilderness to plant more trees
1: See this as being problematic.
0: <laughs> there is an issue here, so and it's like she was really sort of annoyed by this at first. So Francis managed to to push through five hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, five hundred million dollars in immediate relief to the states. Which even all like the uh, the anti-government states' rights folks still just grabbed all that cash as fast as they could. Suddenly, all their yeah, principles. Sure. It's amazing how all their principles. It's like all those people who bitch about oh. Lazy people taking government handouts, and then they all immediately took the PPP loans during the pandemic for their business Mm -hmm. and did not mind that free money at all. Same thing. So even all the people who spoke out against all the shit uh, Francis and FDR were trying to do all grabbed for that money. Meanwhile, Francis had to deal with the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps, a program she was intensely skeptical of from the outset. Quote, How wonderful it would be to have groups of these men to take a train to go into the woods. I remember listening to it with some horror as I began to picture the unemployed men I knew who would wonder what in the world to do with an axe if there was an axe. So these are all these like like factory unemployed factory worker immigrants, you know, from the east coast cities and just gonna be just shoved out in the middle of nowhere.
1: Oh yeah, that that yeah, that's not problematic at all
0: but as usual if there was a job to be done she got to work figuring out the best way to accomplish the goal and there was only one organization capable of handling the logistics and transportation required to take hundreds of thousands of unemployed men from the east coast and work in reforesting parts of the western united states she made sure to limit the program to young and healthy men on relief and according to an article on history.com quote the United States Army organized the transportation of thousands of enrollees to work camps around the country. By July 1st, 1933, 1,433 working camps had been established and more than 300,000 men put to work. It was the most rapid peacetime mobilization in, America, in American history. Under the guidance of the U.S. Forest Service, the National Parks Service, and the Departments of the Interior and Agriculture, CCC employees fought forest fires, planted trees, cleared and maintained access roads, reseeded grazing lands, and implemented soil erosion controls. Additionally, they built wildlife refuges, Mm -hmm. fish-rearing facilities, water storage basins, and animal shelters. To encourage citizens to get out and enjoy America's natural resources, FDR authorized the CCC to build bridges and campground facilities." So, it was a huge thing that so Francis got the, the United States Army and it was like literally run like army camps. They even wore like spare uniforms and used, you know, army see, gear.
1: Yeah. I still see this as being problematic. I mean, starting with the phrase work camp.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't and <laughs> it Seems wasn't like it, it, it wasn't forced.
1: It
0: wasn't like forced labor, but it was a way it was it was like yeah. a job it was like a work a jobs program. So, like the way it worked was the men would get thirty dollars a month, twenty-five of it had to be sent back to their families. So they got five bucks for themselves just for, you know, to have a little bit of cash because the majority, you know, their of their needs were being met. You know, they're they're being fed and clothed and housed in these camps. So it's like they're they're definitely like I was I actually listened to some songs. There was like some little folk songs that were praising the CCC and others that completely bitched. Like, why did I join this damn thing for $5 a month? to be treated like shit. There's actually some cute little, mm-hmm. like, barroom drinking song type things that, uh, that you would enjoy. So it's, like, it's not like it was 100% love. But then other people had a lot of good things to say about it. So the program ended when World War II broke out. And by then, the CCC had planted more than 3.5 billion, with a B, trees. More than half of the reforesting in the history of the United States. It built structures in state and national parks that are enjoyed to this very day, and established more than 700 new state parks. Nice. Um, as a side note, uh, legendary actors Walter Matthau, as in Grumpy Old Men, and Raymond Burr, Mr. Perry Mason himself, and famous test pilot Chuck, I broke the speed of sound. Jaeger also were uh, alumni of the Civilian Conservation Corps.
1: Oh, that's cool. So, they're
0: young men, they were out there doing their thing, getting their 30 bucks a month. So, all this is going on, Frances did not have a permanent home in D.C. until a friend offered her a place. Mary Harriman Ramsey was a rich widow and activist, and she and Frances had been friends for years, who offered to share a townhouse in Georgetown, allowing Frances to focus on her work while Mary attended to the household and providing each other access to their friends and political allies. And it gave Frances something she valued most of all privacy. None of her colleagues or even her own staff had a clue where she lived or with whom. So she she had this like secret little She had a
1: secret living arrangement with another woman.
0: with, With another woman. And that's one of those things like there is zero historical evidence that that's anything more than a friendship and partnership. But, you know, in my personal headcanon, I would not be surprised at all if there was something else going on. You know, who knows? doesn't really matter. I mean, there was definitely a lot of love and affection between these two women, whether it was like sexual or not. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, that's the thing about women is we can have lots and lots and lots of love and affection. I consider Monica my best friend and my soulmate. I just don't like her sexually. She's like my sister or myself. But yeah, women can do that. We can have just platonic love and affection for one another.
0: Yeah, and she's so private that if something did was romantic going on between them, we would never know, and Good we don't. For her. So, so I mean, whatever whatever their relationship was, their business and completely private. We don't know. Uh, however, is you know incredibly important to her to have that little little island of peace that she could run away to when she got the hell out of D.C. Now, Francis was pushing hard on relief for the American people, the top priority being a massive public's worth program, a massive in- infrastructure bill that would build schools, hospitals, bridges, airports, and much more. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. All part of FDR's big push in his first 100 days in office, because FDR this like, we're going to do all this shit in the first 100 days, and to this very day, now presidents are always graded on their first 100 days, ever since FDR Started that fine tradition of saying, we got to get some shit done. You don't just sit on your ass. Except me, because I'm in a wheelchair. But (laughs) It would cost billions of dollars. This this program Francis wanted would cost billions of dollars and create countless jobs. But FDR was slippery, and his habit of listening to the loudest and most recent voice almost cost the country. From the documentary Summoned, quote, After Perkins' investigation, the various recovery ideas were merged into a single proposal, including her plan for public works. But as she soon discovered that budget director Lewis Douglas had talked Roosevelt into taking it out. Now it's Francis talking. Roosevelt could take other people's advice with an inadequate understanding of what it was they were advising him. Refusing to give up, Perkins arranged a last minute meeting before the bill went public and convinced the president to put public works back in. So it's like we're this close to like one of the biggest parts of the New Deal just sort of not happening. Just because FDR was listening Just to the other guy. because
1: some assholes were like, hmm. was
0: well, like, well, this is going to cost a bunch of money." Yeah, no shit, buddy.
1: Fuck all of that. Anywho,
0: yeah,
1: and but you know what? The New Deal caused prosperity and growth.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, yes, there are lots of stuff like things like Publix works and infrastructure programs. They they do cost a lot of money, but they but you got to look at it like an investment. You know it's about what you get back from the money you spend and yeah th- at this point it's like it was a double-edged thing because not only did the country desperately need all this shit but it desperately needed to put people to work so there you go so on june 16th 1933 the national industrial recovery act known as the nra and not to be confused with that other nra we are more familiar with today uh, was signed into law and among the many regulations that accompanied it, it explicitly protected the right of American workers to organize. When addressing the American Federation of Labor in San Francisco, Francis said, quote, The opportunity of collective bargaining is established. The act providing that employees should have the right to organize and bargain collectively, Section 7A in the National Recovery Administration, as to what ought to be American policy in regards to rights of labor. So, while there was an initial wave of enthusiasm for the NRA, The sudden established right to organize caused labor strikes to break out all over the country, creating a lot of disruption in what was already an uncertain time. And because the NRA was like a voluntary agreement between government and private business and it didn't really have like legal remedy built into the law, it it turned the program into a giant controversial mess after about a year. And in 1935, the Supreme Court ruled most of the law to be unconstitutional. Fortunately, however, they left the public works section of it alone even if not much else, in it did. And, and Frances, like, she always considered the NRA, like, it was kind of like a good first attempt and deserved to have follow-up that never yeah. fully materialized, sadly. And it was like...
1: They never followed up, you don't say.
0: There was a little bit of follow-up, <laughs> mostly from Frances herself, who worked long hours and pushed herself. Staff half her age found her schedule exhausting. The press followed her in public and were highly critical of her, even as she distrust, distrusted reporters and refused to share a single detail of her personal life, there's one story in which she told reporters that the actress Greta Garbo was staying on the third floor of a hotel, so they would leave her the hell alone, and she could take a meeting. <laughs> she just lied to them, it was like, "Hey, there's a movie star up there." But every so often, Madame's secretary would hit a wall when she could literally just not take it anymore. When that happened, she retreated back to Newcastle, Maine, and she would just go back there and collapse and like stay in bed for weeks and just have food brought to her because she was just like she, she just pushed and pushed and pushed and she she was just done yeah
1: until she was almost dead and then yeah. had to uh, take a nice long rest she, she had to
0: hibernate yeah so once recovered she'd get back to work and leave zero trace of the vulnerability that forced her to retreat from the world so like a couple weeks every now and then she would just have to just completely crash yeah so in 1934, Frances was working hard on a national program of unemployment insurance like the one she'd helped to implement in New York State. At the same time, the plight of poor elderly people was gaining national attention. Because, you know, back then there was no social safety net. So if you were a working class...
1: Yeah. Once you're old and poor, you're pretty much just destitute and homeless and... Yeah, it's pretty shitty.
0: So yeah, it was a really awful situation to be when I mean, you're old. You were just... you If... if if there wasn't, like, family or some local community thing to help you, you were just fucked. You could work all your life, but if you didn't, had no ability to save. And these people didn't, considering what they paid back then. It's awful. So, so you know, this was, it was a national problem. And she pushed FDR for combined legislation to help tackle both of these problems. So Congress was desperate to adjourn for the summer. Because it was like, a major heat wave in summer in D.C. They all want to get the hell out of there. And... FDR took Francis up in the idea of appointing a cabinet committee to create a plan for Congress for the next term. So, like, before everybody left, they figured out what the deal would be, and they assembled this, this committee which would allow FDR to kind of control the process of drafting this legislation. But it also meant they didn't have a lot of time. Like, especially for a giant national program that's bigger than anything that's ever been done in the history of the country. So, he appointed a number of high-ranking officials to the committee and installed Francis as the chair. Armed with an initial budget, which provided for unemployment relief, she organized a large team to turn these ideas into legislation. And everyone had different ideas about how these things should be done. Plus, there were requirements from the President of the United States, because he wanted the program to be self-sustaining. One of FDR's really good ideas that he pushed for was the idea that Americans had to pay into the program themselves, because if they did, then then it wouldn't be just an entitlement. If you're paying in, then no one's ever going to be able to take it away from you. It would be political suicide to take away the money people have been paying in for their whole fucking lives. Which is why social security is still considered this sacred, untouchable thing to this very day.
1: Yup. Even though they still, you know, use the funds and
0: Oh yeah. And they still and they certainly they certainly tiptoe and and mess with it and talk about age of eligibility and all that. So, having already seen what the Supreme Court could do to some of her ideas, Frances had to make sure they'd actually be constitutional, because she already saw what happened to the NRA when most of that got wiped out by a judicial decision. Mm-hmm. But it was at a private party that Supreme Court Justice Harlan Stone gave her a bit of off-the-record advice, as reported by Frances herself. Quote, The taxing power, my dear. The taxing power of the United States. You can do anything under it. I went back to my committee, and I never told them how I got my great information. As far as they knew, I went out into the wilderness and I had a vision. (laughs) So Supreme Court Justice literally whispers in her ear, Taxes. You make it a tax. You can get away with anything. It's literally exactly the same strategy Obama used to, you know, push his idea for. Because using the taxing authority of the United States, it lets you get around other constitutional issues. So by designing a program in which citizens contributed through payroll taxes and would later pay out a retirement benefit it made the program politically invincible it would g- deliver the government checks to recipients through the united states post office another constitutionally guaranteed institution so
1: yeah
0: and it had a name we're all quite familiar with these days social security you know, the program that literally kept my daughter alive during cancer treatment so kind of think it's cool our dad yeah. spent many years receiving dad... so now francis had to convince the american people on a radio address, she described it, quote, It includes provisions for unemployment insurance and for old-age pensions or old-age insurance for the paying of regular and steady and fair income to the people who may be laid off through no fault of their own in the next depression, unquote. On the last night they had, Frances brought the committee to her house and locked them inside with a bottle of scotch until two in the morning. And they managed to complete what had once seemed completely impossible. A comprehensive national legislative proposal for Social Security done in six months. Wow. The bill included unemployment insurance, old aid pensions, and universal health care. Now she had to roll up her sleeves and push the bill through Congress, even as her personal life took another turn for the tragic. So, the end of 1934, Frances's dear friend and housemate, Mary Rumsey, fell from her horse while out hunting and died from her injuries.
1: Oh, that sucks.
0: Yeah, she was doing that's what she, you mean, know, doing, rich people hunt, like hunting and had an equestrian accident. She died. And so, Frances lost the home that had been her local refuge as well as the supportive relationship that she'd relied on during all this time. But there wasn't any time for her to feel sorry for herself, there was work to be done, as usual. There was a rival plan being touted in newspapers and street corners to Social Security, dreamed up by a doctor named Frances Townsend. So yes, we have Francis versus Francis up in this podcast. Awesome. Francis Townsend's uh, popular plan, which, like I said, initially super popular, said that every American over sixty would pay, would receive two hundred dollars a month, paid for by a two percent national sales tax. And it wasn't just like a sales tax; it was like a, sa- a sales tax on. It was called a transactional tax. Like any business transaction of any kind would be subject to this two percent tax. And by law, the recipient of the funds would have to spend all of it within 30 days. Which is interesting. I have no idea how that would be enforced.
1: Yeah, what? They can't...
0: Okay. And and if all huh? the... No, if all the... Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, some, there's some flaws in the Townsend plan, but it sounded so good in terms of like easy street corner rhetoric. Because if and if all that mattered was national popularity, the Townsend Plan would have been what we ended up with, even though it was doomed from the outset. I mean, it's easy to imagine. You understand, two hundred dollars a month was double what the Amer- average American worker earned in nineteen thirty-four. So that's like suddenly you hit sixty and you're suddenly making bank every month, but you were required by law to spend it all, and it was all paid for by this small transactional tax. But when like
1: yeah, that's fucking problematic and weird.
0: Yeah, and then when actual like economists. That Yeah, when economists actually broke it down, like this sounds great until you realize that that the tax only covered less than a third of what the payout would be. So if you actually wanted to fund the program, you'd need to possibly tax up to 14% on every single transaction in the United States. And suddenly it doesn't sound so great. Yeah.
1: A month check or whatever. But at the same time, okay, yeah. And maybe that won't even raise up. What about people who made more than that? Or, you know... no the whole thing sounds stupid and problematic
0: completely messed up well this might was it had nothing to do with that like like you hit 60 it didn't matter whether you're working or not this plan is just the moment you hit the age you start getting the money and because it was so much higher than what regular people made like it it essentially would have been a giant transfer of wealth to just old people everywhere it's a very strange idea
1: huge influx of wealth than they immediately had to spend
0: but they had to they had to spend it all or be subject to penalty like i said weird plan so but there were 25 million signatures in support of dr townsend's idea so they really had to fight against it in congress Frances was accused in public and on the floor of congress she was accused of being a guess what bambi
1: a communist
0: yes socialist basically yes (laughs) Clearly trying to take over the government from within. Yep, yep. It took her additional seven months of wrangling, negotiating, speeches, radio addresses, articles, letters, and backroom deals to push this damn thing forward. She probably felt like she aged 10 years in this one year. Having to wheel and deal all these asshole lawmakers. Now, old age pensions were the most popular part of the bill. So they kind of moved things around so it was in the front of the... It was like front loaded. So okay, the, the thing everybody likes is up front, the old age pensions next before unemployment insurance which was a little bit more mixed along with workers compensation and aid for the poor and disabled and unfortunately the one place that the socialism label stuck was the plan for national health insurance Mm. so yeah we could have had we could have had universal health care before world war ii but but they
1: were such dicks about it imagine that it was not
0: gonna happen but finally on august 14th 1935 fdr signed the social security act now, a woman named Maureen Mulliner was an assistant to an important senator during this whole process and she's quoted as saying, quote, I don't think President Roosevelt had the remotest interest in a social security bill or program. He was simply pacifying Francis, unquote.
1: Oh my goodness. So the greatest things that he did in office, he...
0: At least that one chick, she and she worked for Senator Wagner, who was definitely on Francis's side of the, of the aisle.
1: Did it for Francis. Well, at least he yeah. fucking did it. He, he okay. did it.
0: I mean, he kept his he promise to back her. Frances was not one to sit on her laurels. She kept working on her wish list. The National Labor Relations Act of 1935 reestablished the rights of workers to collectively bargain after the, after the Supreme Court had knocked it off. And this led to a huge rise in union membership throughout the country. In June of 1938 saw the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act. This created the federal minimum wage, at the time 25 cents per hour, and set maximum working hours of 8 hours per day, 44 hours per week for most workers. Child labor under 16 years old was banned completely, and and under 18 you couldn't work at any kind of hazardous job that, you know, was riskier for injury.
1: She didn't want children murdered. Hooray!
0: Oh, you don't want, you know, I guess seeing a couple of children... Taking their smoke break with their one good hand they have left after the other one got mangled. Yeah, well, you <laughs> know. The machines.
1: That probably lost its charm after she saw dozens of little girls die out
0: of a window. Yeah. So, except for universal health care, Frances had achieved her wish list within five years holding the position. Wow.
1: With the exception of the universal health care, she just got oh. old people and young children health care.
0: So... These triumphs are where the documentary Summoned chooses to end because her mark clearly made on American life that lasted this very day. But Frances would not only live for decades more, she served an additional seven years as Secretary of Labor all the way until Roosevelt's death in 1945. And her troubles were not exactly over. So, (laughs) like, you know, normally Frances is very polite, even if she could be kind of curt, but she could get kind of heated when it came to fighting on behalf of of workers and labor organizers. So there was a, a big infamous sit-down strike at General Motors. And Frances called the chairman of, of the board at GM and called him names like Scoundrel and Skunk for not agreeing to the demands of the union. She is quoted as saying, you don't deserve to be accounted among decent men. You'll go to hell when you die. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. She fucking told She's the president to of General Motors he's going to hell. Piece of shit. Give you guys yeah. better pay and She probably
1: wasn't wrong either. Just saying.
0: What? You don't think an automotive CEO wasn't the greatest guy on earth?
1: Probably not. I'm going to go with, mm, no.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fuck him.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even know anything about, yeah, that. And I'm going to go with, I believe her.
0: I choose to take Francis' side on this one. He's, yep. If there is a hell, he's roasting in it right now. All right. Uh, controversy arose when a labor leader from Australia named Harry Bridges... Let a general strike in San Francisco. A general strike is when everybody stops working, and it really fucks everything, completely yeah. shutting down economies. It's it's great. If we could if we could arrange a massive nationwide general strike, we could get anything we wanted.
1: Yeah, but now,
0: however, it be. this guy was accused of being a communist, and his enemies mm-hmm. wanted him deported for subversive activities. And now, and now here's yeah. the thing, me and you are so sick of hearing about this, but this is where I have to be fair. Turns out his accusers were actually correct. When the Soviet Union collapsed and, and later documents were declassified, it turns out he actually was an agent for the USSR and his code name was Rossi. So, so every once in a while this shit was true. This was, See, you know,
1: that's the problem. It's like every once in a while and it's like, see, we were right. And, that you know, and, one, that one time.
0: And once again, to be fair, like, we're in a very different time. Now I roll my eyes. But at the time, mm-hmm. there really was this this real fear. Like that, that was a problem? Like, like <laughs> the, when people talk about how there's like, oh, the, you know, you're a communist like the Soviet Union. The, communi- the Soviet Union never actually achieved communism. Because the idea of communism is actually to dissolve all world borders and create one massive world state led by the workers. It's literally workers of the world unite. So there really was this move to organize workers in other countries to do this very thing. They really, like the end game really was for communism to take over the whole world. So they weren't wrong that it's a thing that they were trying to make happen. It's just that, you know, the hysteria was usually way overblown. And now it's completely overblown and ridiculous. Um, So anyway, no one knew that at the time. So it was just this controversy, you know people slinging mud on both sides and she was sticking up for the labor organizers of which he was one so it was a big ugly court battle with supporters on both sides but the deportation hearings were operated under the department of labor which meant that was under francis's umbrella Mm -hmm. making her the big target for all the newspapers so accusations flew her way they they said she was a russian jew and secret communist oh yeah Um. (laughs) it was great (laughs)
1: Oh, that's not racist Literally all. the fucking you're, you're 1930s... You're a
0: Russian Jew. 1930s bingo card of bigotry. Oh you're, my God. You're a Russian Jewish communist. Oh and FDR Lord. revealed himself to be the fair-weathered friend he could be and let her hang out to dry. And he wasn't the mm. only one. Like, her allies in the legislature uh, kept their mouths shut. as nobody was willing to stick their necks out for her. It was really only her corrupt as shit but loyal as hell friends from Tammany Hall back in New York that stayed by her the whole fucking time. So you need your crony political guys, you know.
1: You need your muscle.
0: (laughs) Those guys, they stuck with her because she she supported them even though everybody knew that they were not exactly playing by the rules.
1: But they were getting the shit done.
0: So on February 8th, 1939, Francis appeared before the House Judiciary Committee when articles of impeachment were filed against her. Francis, so she got, she literally uh, had an impeachment inquiry. Uh, This is from David Brooks again. Quote, She appeared before the House Judiciary Committee as it considered articles of impeachment against her. She delivered a long and detailed recitation of the administrative procedures initiated against Bridges, the reasons for them, and their legal constraints preventing further action. The questions ranged from the skeptical to the brutal. When opponents made vicious charges against her, she asked them to repeat their question, believing that no person can be scurrilous twice. The photographs of the hearing made her look haggard and exhausted, but she impressed the committee with her detailed knowledge of the case. Unquote. So, she was able to survive the impeachment hearing, uh, but it hung over her reputation for the rest of her life. No, yeah. Sure did. Francis wanted to resign, and in fact, twice over the next several years, she sent FDR letters of resignation. At one point, the president wrote back, quote, Francis, you can't go now. You mustn't put this on me now. I can't think of anybody else. I can't get used to anyone else. Not now. Do stay there and don't say anything. You're alright. Unquote.
1: <laughs> You're alright. Fuck just, no. Just take it. Just take it forever. It'll be fine. It's like, goddammit,
0: FDR, if you wanted her to stick around, maybe you should have stuck up for her. Ugh.
1: He's very problematic.
0: Yeah, FDR is, is frustrating. He's the
1: best <laughs> we had, but he was still fucking problematic.
0: yeah. yeah. Lots of good things about FDR, however, not necessarily, you know, the most loyal friend. So he, ex- he expected, you know, more her to stick around for him, but not the other way around, which sucked. Yeah. But once again, she really did feel this sense of duty. So she worked behind the scenes, doing as best she could, but without the same level of clout and connection she'd previously enjoyed. But she never shed a tear or made a complaint or felt sorry for herself. I mean, that's just not her style. She just quietly did her best, even if she could never be quite as effective as she was before the impeachment. Uh, As World War II broke out over Europe, she urged the president to assist European Jews.
1: Good for her.
0: Yeah, she generally stayed on the right side of history for the most part. It took FDR's death in 1945 to finally and mercifully be released from service. Though Truman asked Francis to serve on the Civil Service Commission, so she kind of hopped to a different job. Her most noted stance as commissioner was to speak out against officials hiring only physically attractive female employees. So literally these guys are like only wanting secretaries and stenographers who are hot. Yeah, that's not how this is
1: supposed to work.
0: Yeah. And this was the point she decided to write a book. And she had a a golden opportunity where she could have defended herself and her reputation by writing an autobiography. But instead, she wrote The Roosevelt I Knew. The the biography of of FDR I just mentioned a little bit earlier and once again still regarded as a real like if you're fdr scholars and people who are just interested still recommended to read because she had a very kind of real understanding of his psychology for uh, you know from yeah, the standpoint and- of somebody who worked with him closely so it was it was in 1952 when francis decided to leave her life of public service after her husband paul wilson died at the age of 75. A few years later, she took a position as a lecturer at New York State School of Industrial Labor Relations at Cornell University, which she would hold for the rest of her life, because she required a salary to continue to pay for her daughter's care. Wow. And it actually sounds as though she truly enjoyed her time at Cornell. According to Brooks, quote, At first she lived in residential hotels during her time in Ithaca, but she was then invited to live in a small bedroom at Telluride House, a sort of fraternity house for some of Cornell's most gifted students. She was delighted by the invitation. I feel like a bride on her wedding night, she told friends. While there, she drank bourbon with the boys and tolerated their music at all hours. She attended the Monday house meetings, though she rarely spoke. She gave them copies of Baltasar Gratians' The Art of Worldly Wisdom, a 17th century guidebook by a Spanish Jesuit priest on how to retain one's integrity while navigating the halls of power. She became close friends with Alan Bloom, a young professor who would go on to achieve fame as the author of the closing of the American mind. Some of the boys had trouble understanding how this small, charming, and unassuming old lady could have played such an important historical role. Perkins biographer Kirsten Downey is quoted as saying the time in Telluride House as probably the happiest phase of her life. So here she is right at the end having the best time because she has a lot less responsibility. She's just... Uh, she's just a teacher now, basically. She's giving these yeah. giving these lectures. She
1: has a really light job compared yeah. to what she was doing yeah. before. There's a lot
0: of light. weight. Now she's just imparting her wisdom on the younger generation, all while drinking and hanging out with a bunch of college-age dudes at night and just having a blast. So there's like partying with this little old lady who literally created an important chunk of America as they knew it.
1: I bet it would be fun to be one of those dudes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's like...
1: Hanging out. And again, it was they were gifted students, so they were all intelligent.
0: Yeah, I mean, as like as long as you were up for a, a like an intellectual conversation, I bet she would have been a a blast to just like drink whiskey and talk bullshit with. And when I mean bullshit, it would be like you know history and politics and you know philosophy and religious thinking. I mean, she was she had a lot of stuff to say yeah, and yeah. a lot of strong opinions. So. Frances never traveled by airplane, always taking a bus or train to her destination, and later in life always kept a copy of her last will and testament in her purse because she said when she died, she wouldn't cause any trouble. (laughs) She's like, yeah, when I croak, my my will will be right there. You'll know what to do. On May 15th, 1965, the Associated Press released the following, quote, Frances Perkins, first U.S. woman cabinet member, whose three-cornered hat became a symbol that enraged New Deal opponents, is dead at the age of 83. The colorful, controversial Secretary of Labor under Franklin D. Roosevelt from 1933 to 1945 died Friday night in Midtown Hospital on Manhattan's east side. She had left her post as lecturer at New York State School of Industrial Relations at Cornell University two weeks ago and was admitted to the hospital for routine examination. She suffered a stroke in the hospital. The vivacious little lady, who was known as Madam Perkins, was alone when death came. Her daughter and son-in-law has visited her during the day.
1: Okay, so her daughter required care, but she was still able to get married.
0: Yeah, I I don't really know. I didn't. I didn't look into as many details as I should have of her daughter Susanna's later life. I do know this: Susanna Perkins, whatever her married name was, she lived to two thousand and three. Okie dokie. So I mean, so even though she had a very difficult life with mental instability issues, I mean, she physically, you know, was healthy enough to live. To also be really old lady like her mom. So, okay. now that we've reached the end of her life, it's difficult to sum up everything that she did and all of her accomplishments. She worked her entire adult life for the benefit of the poor, the immigrant, the worker. She f- sought to limit the abuse against women and children and made sure that old people would have the support and dignity even through retirement into their death. There are many memorials and monuments that bear her name, even if the American public has mostly forgotten her. But I think her legacy is best summed up in her own words. Quote, I have spent most of my adult life in the service of the people of my country, working to improve their living and laboring standards. I have done what I could in my time to make this country of Oz a little nearer to our conception of the city of God. Unquote. So yeah, it's one thing. She never lost her religious beliefs. It's just for her, her religious beliefs were, were about service. And not just on some little scale, but like a big one. Like, we got to make this whole world better for everybody.
1: Yeah, well, that's amazing. Yeah, her Christianity actually
0: involves serving the poor and the sick and the old. And it's like
1: and the young, the very yeah. young. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. And that, that's that. There we go. That's it. That's Francis Perkins. Woohoo. Yeah, I mean. Yeah,
1: you know, no, I like her a lot. Uh,
0: you know, it's like it's kind of her own fault that we don't know more about her, and that her name isn't celebrated more. Not to mention that her enemies kind of trashed her. Toward the end of her, the biggest chunk you know, of her career,
1: I almost like that. And you know, she had the opportunity to be like, "I could spill," and she was like, mm, "I don't want to."
0: That's the thing; she didn't actually care. Off. Like, like she would—I'm convinced she would think we're wasting our time talking about her right now when we could just be pushing forward that universal health care thing that mattered a lot to her and never got done.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, in order to really move forward, you had to look backward a little.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's. Otherwise, you do stupid
1: history. and ignorant things like just pushing forward blindly. Hey,
0: but that's it. So, thank you, listeners, for checking out Francis Perkins. Uh, next week, we're going to be back talking about someone shitty again. And uh, I'm not going to let Aww. Bambi. I'm not going to give Bambi too much of a break. This was our palate cleanser. We got to get back into our true mission of taking these pieces of shit that some people think are these great men sometimes women, but let's face it, it's a man, uh, that is actually it's, sucked yeah. and deserves our attention. Anybody who wants to learn more about our show uh, and support us can do so through Patreon, where you'll find all of our show notes and extra bits, um, bonus episodes, and new material and announcements coming soon. You can reach that just by going to chainsawhistory.com. You want to email us with your questions, your suggestions, your um, whatever snide remarks you want to send our way. You can send to chainsawhistory at gmail.com. And you can follow us at Chainsaw History on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Jamie1KM. And if you come to my uh, Twitch page that you can get to from jamiechambers.tv, you can go... Watch me play some old d and based computer games and uh, blow off some steam from having to deal with shitty people in history.
1: Or shitty people
0: currently. Meanwhile, Bambi is hiding from the internet.
1: I I hide from the internet. I, I almost try to just hide from people in general, but, you know, occasionally I do get out and about.
0: But if you want to pester Bambi, you can uh, go to our Patreon again, ChanceOfHistory.com, and I will force her to answer you. <laughs>
1: No, if you want to be my Patreon friend, I will, it's, because again, that's like, we'll establish a personal connection where you won't feel like a total stranger to me.
0: And in the next few weeks, we're going to be building a Discord community that's going to all tie into this stuff. So that'll be a place also where maybe we'll be forced to hang out and socialize online. That
1: That is probably more forced, yeah.
0: But it will be <laughs> our people, not just like the internet at large.
1: Yeah, be kind to me, people of planet Earth. You can be mean to Jamie all you want.
0: Yeah. Be don't be mean to my sister be, or Be I will mean to me. Jamie. Uh, in honor of Frances Perkins and her efforts to improve workplace safety, once again we're supporting the National Safety Council, which was founded in 1913 to reduce workplace accidents and increase safety standards. So, visit nsc.org to learn more and contribute.
1: Okay, well, I think that's about wrapping it up.
0: I think that's it. I, now I'm hungry for for bread and roses.
1: Bread and Roses. I'm telling you, you should uh, it's a beautiful song. I've heard it.
0: All Thanks. right, we'll
1: see you next time.
0: Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya.
1: As we go marching, marching In the beauty of the day A million darkened kitchens A thousand new lost graves are touched
0: with all the radiance That a sudden sun discloses For the
1: people here are singing Bread and roses
0: Bread and roses